This podcast is a Bendy Geddig Media production. Hello, I'm Michael Sheen, and you are listening to a Touchline Rant podcast. Episode 181 of a Touchline Run podcast. My name is Luke, and this week I'm joined by someone very special indeed, Mr. Wayne Barton, esteemed author. He's an author. I was going to say football football author, but that's not correct. Author. How are you, Wayne? Yeah, I'm, I'm good, thanks, Luke. How are you? I'm, I'm doing very well. I am doing very well. Um, I wanted to start this podcast off by just sort of saying, I'm going to give people a little peek behind the wizard's curtain, if it were, but I just wanted to say uh, a, a thank you, really, while we're recording this, because it was you who initially sort of gave me my first like opportunity to work, do something creative within football, really, which with previous, you know, back in the seven Cantonars days, this is literally going to mean something to just you and I, but it's my podcast. So <laughs> um, the seven Cantonars days and the false 10 days as we were just talking, you know, before recording and stuff. And that led to then me start my own website, which in turn then led to this podcast. And here we are now talking about it. So, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you right from the off, really. Well, let me return that thank you because, um, yeah, if you're going to come in with that level of dignity and say that I gave you a break, um, I started um, a Manchester United website because I had the good fortune to know a few former players and um, obviously needed a bit of ground swell of support from other fans to get that project off the ground. And you were there to help with that, um, one of the very early um, phases to sort of pitch in with that. Um, so it wasn't a case of, well, maybe if you want to see it that way, that I was giving you a platform, but you were helping me get something off the ground. And um, and then that was the same, exactly the same with False 10. You were right there on day one, ground zero, um, when we started this silly idea. I mean, it was a silly idea. It was a very ambitious idea, um, which I still think now... Um, probably it suffered because the United writing sort of took over yeah. a little bit and, and I had the opportunity to write books um, which I obviously we're going to come on to but obviously it suffered through that but um, when it did suffer and stagnate through my own um, laziness you <laughs> carried that going for a long time um, and False 10 was a website that was initially intended to aggregate the news of all of the teams in in the league um, on a daily basis, so you could go there a little bit like um, your sort of BBC daily gossip, but from everywhere. Yeah. And that's how. Um, and to be fair, it did quite well. And with that, because it got on the Guardian's one hundred to watch list, didn't it? Yeah, it did. 20, yeah, twenty eleven, and it got us a lot of attention. And but then the sort of ideas of that change because that was very time consuming for one or two people to do. We had a lot of people working on that at that time mm-hmm. and maybe probably about 10 or 11 people trying to put that together. And then those people couldn't commit 
to that kind of demand because it was a lot of work to put into yeah. that off the ground. That's why it got noticed because of that kind of work. But nobody could commit to that apart from me on a very sort of small basis that sort of dwindled away and then you kept going with it and kept it actually thriving for a long time and and the the sort of premise of the uh, the website changed a little bit where it became more about nuanced football debate and sort of weird celebrity interviews that you yeah. engineered <laughs> you know we were talking just before like luke in, um interviewed people from Ewan McIntosh, who's Keith from The Office, to yeah. Jeff, Jeff Hurst, Sir Jeff Hurst, who scored the <laughs> hat-trick in the World Cup final. So um, that was Luke's sort of toady force, really, pushing through on that. And, um, you, you know, it's not... Yeah, that wasn't... I, I see that as you helping me out, and you certainly... Um, you've done great, and it, it's great to be able to talk football with you again. Um, after all this time, it's just... Um, yeah, just great. Really great. I'm very, very, very glad that you're on. It's, it's, it's something that you've been literally on the top of my guest list since we started this, which is four years ago in July that we started. As soon as I said, right, we should start getting guests on now, your name was one of the first that I wrote down. And I've still got that original notebook. And I've crossed them all off. And I'm going to go home tonight and, I, and cross your name off and put a little smiley face next to it just for my own... I'll, just just I'll, I'll come back. You don't have to sort of just, <laughs> you don't rule me out forever. That's it. No, no one and done. One and done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. As you, as we said, you were, you know, you, you are uh, a writer of immense repute, and you, you have got a, a a new book that has come out about George Best. What, like, what a person to write about. Like what did what's that? Did you always want to write a book about George Best? Like was he always one of your, you know, sort of in, intended like, like, targets? I guess it's the wrong word to use, but no, it it's, always... a, it's the right word to use. But um, I would say um, from the perspective of being a United fan who writes about United, hmm. um, obviously writing about George Best would be a goal. Um, but in terms of writing a book about George Best seriously and getting it put out there, um, I had to wait until there was a, a period of time that had passed where I had enough experience, I had enough contacts, um, and also had the credibility that I could put a book out about George Best and people wouldn't necessarily dismiss it mm. as rubbish. You know, you're just writing another book about George and there's been too much written about him. I wanted to be able... Um, when that time came that I could put a book out and people would ask me what's different about this and mm. I could explain to them properly what was different and not just because I wanted to write a book about George, that I could feel I was adding something credible to it. Um, mm. And and yeah, I mean, yeah, to, to answer that question another way, I, want, I, want, I could write books about every single player that played for Manchester United because I love the club that much and I love the players that play yeah. for the club. You know, you know personally that I'm good friends with a lot of lads who didn't make it in uh, United and they're some yeah. of my, be my closest friends you know and I, I love their stories Phil Marsh who um, was involved in one of the major incidents after the Jimmy Davis car crash there was mm. the next car crash at, at Carrington and he was a, a big um, he was a he was the victim of that and um, he came through to play in the first team and he only played like one game for the club but his journey to get there like a three-year journey coming back from this moment where he felt like he'd be paralysed forever. He just um, The reason why I'm explaining that in so much detail is because it enthralls me as a fan and as a lad and knowing him 
mm. such a good guy. So yeah, I could I could talk for hours, and I will, and I, and I have, and and I do about these other players who play for Manchester United. So not necessarily about the best few you know that yeah. ever played for them, but obviously the likes of George Best, uh, they're held in that sort of prestige and, and the way that we all look at players like that, Cantona, Ronaldo. Yeah. Um, players. So yeah, obviously, I would love to write about all of them. And this just so happened to be this um, this George Best book coming around at a time when um, I, I don't know what. It, obviously, I've interviewed lots of people just like you have. Um, had that fortune to do that talk football. So whenever you do, whenever you talk to anyone like a Harry Gregg or anyone, you ask them questions as many questions as they'll let you without annoying them. Yeah. Um, and then you can use that as a basis for something. So, I, you know, obviously I've got hundreds of interviews, people that I talked to about George Best um, and all, well, you know, many of them coming back with the same kind of stories. And then some would tell you some new stories and you'd think one day, maybe one day I'll park that and just revisit it. And um, it was a, another friend who I think we both know, Dan, uh, one of my close mates, he said to me, um, he just sent me a message. He said, you know what, I think you should write that book about George Best now. And it came out of the blue. He just decided to send me that out of the blue. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't know. So I, I talked about it with my wife and she said, what could you do that hasn't been done? So there was a couple of angles that could go about it. And the the primary one was the, the thing that I could add that wasn't really done was a book that was just about his football. Yeah. And I just finished writing one about David Beckham that was just about his football. And I thought, yeah, I could do that about George Best if I get the extra interviews on top of what I'd already done, which could really flesh it out. And funnily enough, the premise of that was what got me through the door to open. Um, to talk to so many new people about George was the idea that I was just going to talk about his football. Um, and as soon as I, I was getting green lights on those interviews, I was like, yeah, I've got to do it. And he just sort of snowballed really quickly, really. And... Um, it's strange because I'm really proud of it, um, having finished it and, and gone through it and started with that objective of doing that and never once getting sidetracked into the other side of it, uh, which everyone knows, you know, his illness and yeah. everything like that, without that becoming the dominating topic of the latter 30 to 40% of the book, um, that I stayed true to what I was going to do. Uh, really proud of that. So, yeah, that's how it came about. And... Um, mm. Yeah, to be convinced into sort of saying that I was ready, really, but um, I did feel that I was obviously because I wouldn't have done it. And um, yeah, happy with how it sort of came about. Yeah, with that you say about you know getting people to talk about George, and so that was one of the things that I was going to say was was it easier to get them to open up knowing that you weren't looking for sort of you know salacious gossip and you were trying you weren't trying to find any other you know demons for want of a better term that you know may not have been aired yet you know you weren't going down that route um who were the who were the people that you saw you know who who features in the book for those you know who will want to go out and buy this book after this after they listen to this podcast who are some of the people that you you spoke to because i know you spoke to a lot of people who played with him you know some who played against him you know some that would have well would have managed him as well yeah 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 um yeah, it's a cross section of that um, for sure. The youth team colleagues, um, with the likes of Willie Anderson, so 
if any of these people listen to this podcast who I did an interview for the book and I, I don't mention them here, it doesn't, it's just because I've lost um, track of them for that moment in my mind. Um, I turned 40 yesterday. Um, I'm allowed my moments, yeah, and my senior moments where I forget things. So that's that might come into play here. So uh, a whole bunch of youth team colleagues, Willie Anderson, Jimmy Rimmer, Jim Ryan, um, John Fitzpatrick, who sadly passed away um, between the time of publication, mm-hmm. Eddie Harrop. Um, so, yeah, six or seven, I think it was more like seven or eight youth team players um, who were, you know, then the, the, the players that played with him, Alex Stepney. Um, I'd already talked to Dennis Law before, but I didn't really get as much as I could in terms of new content. So I relied on archive stuff for Dennis. Um, Paddy Crerand as well, you know, um, the players that he played with, Carlos Alturi, um, was a, the first, well, he was. He's technically the first foreign player to play for United, although he was, um, he's a Salford as they come. Um, um, yeah, and then so like later career, obviously the players throughout his career, like Willie Morgan and, and players like that, um, and then um, towards the end of his career when he left United, the likes of Rodney Marsh, who, played, who was his long-time friend, mm. um, some of the guys who played against him in America, Tony Gale, um, who played with him at Fulham, you know, uh, just a, a complete cross section of um, of people, really, and, and the ones that when I did talk to them, particularly the youth team colleagues, when I, I would say I'm writing this book about George, um, and I said, and I'm not going to talk about his drinking, they would thank me for doing that. They yeah. actually say thank you for writing this, thank you for doing it. I'm so humbling to hear that because we're already on um, a good. A good sound footing, really. Like, and yeah. I can vividly remember Jimmy Rimmer's interview. He was a U team goalkeeper, and I can remember listening back to it. And he was reminding me, though he's kind of reminding himself through it. Oh yeah, we're not talking about his drinking. He yeah. had to keep reminding himself, like he he'd taken himself down that path because he thought that that's what I wanted to talk about. I was saying, no, 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 you don't need to. And he's like, oh yeah, we're not talking about his drinking, are we? <laughs> and he was like, oh, it's it's really refreshing, you know. And and then yeah, at the end, like you know, people thanking you for writing it, which is you know, these are legendary names in the club that we both support. So yeah, um, yeah it was that was really good, um, and I was really happy as well with the. With the um, the fact that I didn't go for the um, really obvious names, you have to go to, for some because obviously yeah. you want to round out those um, well-known stories. But I think also you've heard Bobby Charlton's stories about George Best. You've heard Dennis Lowe's stories about George Best. Yeah. What about the stories of them all together and uh, you know the the people who were with him as a kid and stuff like that? So I wanted to sort of flesh out the. Um, the reality of George Best as opposed to the um, glamorous part of the Holy Trinity. I mean, he's that as well, but he's also a person, first and yeah. foremost. Yeah, it's, it must, we, in the process of getting these interviews then, because, you, as you say, you haven't gone, you know, it was you spoke to such a wide range of people and from different parts of his career as well, you know, and not just, like you say, not just at United, you know, at Fulham and, and in America and so on. Were there any stories that came out that you were just, that you, you know, I'm assuming that some of the stories that had come up, you had sort of either heard before or, you know, think, but were there any which stand out in your memory as ones which, you know, when someone says it to you, you know, the hairs on the back of your, your neck stand up. I've had it with interviewing people where they've said something and I've immediately, the part of my brain has just gone, well, that's the quote. That's what we're going to hone in on, you yeah. know? 
Simoes, um, who played against him for Benfica in 1966 and 1968, so two seminal moments in Georgia's career. Um, yeah, definitely, I had a couple of those moments with him because um, he spoke so passionately and emotionally about um, his experiences of being on the pitch with George. Yeah. So you've got to imagine that this is a guy who they'd never lost at home in Europe and George went to the stadium of light, scored two goals and they won 5-1. And Simoes said it was a privilege to be on the pitch with him that night. Some of the other players had nightmares and he said, I had nightmares for a few weeks after. But then time went and, and years went on and then you realise that it was just an honour to be on the pitch when he was doing that because you're included in that cast of players who were on one of the most famous, they performed in one of the most famous games in history. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the privilege that he spoke of, he said, and he said things like, you know, on that night, um, he was a prince who became a king. Yeah, um, you know what I mean, and, and things like that. And he, the, I mean, I don't know what it is, but That's foreign, a great quote. because foreign speakers, um, foreign speakers, when they speak in English, they've always got um, a romantic way of delivering lines. Yeah. I think they they use their translation. You know, like I guess that'll probably be something that is often said in Portuguese. You know, so to deliver yeah. it in English, you don't really get that um, level of poetic. Um, from and with all due respect, Rodney Marsh will tell you um, great stories, and, and he, he can de certainly deliver a line or two, and, a, and an emotional line or two. Don't mm. let me discount Rodney, but you know what I'm talking about the, the eloquence in which Simois spoke about him and the yeah. way that his voice was almost breaking because, um, yeah, so, so some of those moments were great as well. And obviously, I mean, the, the um, things that I hadn't heard, you know, we've all heard stories and we've told stories and maybe even being subject to them when you're growing up and kids on, on the street or the neighborhood around you are so good and they could have made it. Um, those kind of stories being told about George Best yeah. by the youth team players, uh, because they're not really often told, like, you know, John Fitzpatrick saying, George turned to me and he, he was getting bold. So he said, give me the ball. I'm going to go around all the players and score. And then he actually did it. Do you know what I mean? Or, or yeah. Jim Ryan, for example, saying, we were going to a game at, at Wolves and I was waiting for George to give me his comp ticket, but he was practising in the morning, so he had to wait while George was practising. And what he, George was actually practising practicing on was scoring corner kicks at the cliff. There was no goalkeeper in the net. He was just practising the curl into the net. And then later on at night, when they played at Wolves in the FA Cup, George scored a corner kick. In exactly the same way that, so he'd been practicing it with the intention of trying to score it. Now, and people might just say, "Well, that's a story." Think of any modern player. Yeah, they don't do it. They don't do it. So that's the how far in front he was of his time and of his peers. So things like that were just yeah outstanding. I mean, some some of those stories kind of have been told. I don't. I'm not. I'm sure I heard the corner story somewhere before I went into writing it, but never in, in detail, you know, so I was, that was the kind of thing I was like, no, I want to, I'm going to put that into legend because that's incredible what he did, do you know? And um, yeah, so that those are the kind of things really that, um, yeah, they did make, they still make me feel like that, to be honest, um, you know, because that's well, part of the, the genius. Yeah, well, it's, I suppose, you know, when you've got someone like George, but there's so many words have been written about him already. And like you said before, you know, this is what I love about this book. I mean, is that you've 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 gone down the route of well, we all know off the field stuff. We all know this. It's a story that 
it's not the story that we should be telling now. You know, it's it's because when you, when you look at the drinking and you look at all of this, I think uh, personally for me, from when I was growing up, it was always sort of it was seen as oh what a waste. Rather than now, I think opinions have changed in that we now recognise that what happened was that he was ill. That's yeah. what that's all it was. It wasn't a waste. It wasn't that he he was just going up. You know, he wasn't trying to be a rock star or whatever he had an illness you know yeah. and he, he and he, he unfortunately succumbed to that but that when you've got a player of the ability of george best it's there's so much that you can talk about just on the pitch you don't yeah. need to mention it you know you don't need to it was you know we can just celebrate how good he was what stands out for me with with george best is without sounding as I'm slagging off players from a you know from years gone by as it were sometimes you watch some of those older games and the speed of the game is it's a lot slower than it was and the ability may not necessarily with a lot of them be on par with some of the players that you see today you know yeah with George Best I stand by he could you could take prime prime best now and put him in today's game and he'd still flourish yeah. No, you're right, and also there's actually evidence that supports that, and I, I'm always interested in that theory, Luke. You know, the cross generational thing, and I always used to. I know it's probably not a great name to mention at the moment, but Ryan Giggs, the, yeah. the fact that he crossed two or three generations, yeah. almost playing at the top. I always think, well, obviously that's a, a really strong example of mm-hmm. a player who can cross generations, and. Don't get me wrong, the, the shift from 1992 to 2020 isn't so pronounced um, that from between 1960 to 1990, for example, that would be really a pronounced shift in you know, how the game changed. But, for example, in 1971, the um, they changed the sort of laws on tackling from behind. Now, I know they got outlawed in 1994. Was it 94 after the World Cup yeah. when there was an automatic red card? Well... I guess whatever it was in 1971, you were allowed to tackle like animals before. And 1971 came and they said, you can't do that anymore. And then George's form in the first few weeks of that season was probably, and he wasn't under Busby at this point. This was the Franco Farrell era, the first few weeks of it. Mm. Probably played as good as he ever did. He was scoring hat-tricks all the time. So the seminal goal he scored against Sheffield United, the hat-trick against West Ham. Um, which gets replayed everywhere. Um, that was this kind of run of form. So what, the point what I'm saying is that George, um, in his in the interim when the rules weren't being changed, yeah, he was becoming um, one of the great quotes in the book is Stepney and, and Rimmer, who were both present. I think Rimmer played and Stepney was in the stands when George scored that goal against um, Chelsea, where Ron Harris tries to kill him. Yeah, basically, basically, and and then George stays. He loses his balance a bit because there's contact, but he he remains on his feet, dances around the goalkeeper, puts it in. The incredible thing about that is that that's how quick George had become. He'd he'd now learned. No, I have to beat the foul. They're gonna foul. They're gonna tackle me, and they're gonna be late. But they're gonna be so late that they're gonna foul me. But I'm gonna be quicker than even that. That's how we had to work in his head that he'd done that. So imagine that he. Mad, he'd come with this kind of magic. He'd he'd sort of mastered that, and then the rules had changed to catch up to help him. Yeah, and then he was that good again. He was that far in front of everyone. So imagine better pitchers, better boots, lighter balls. Yeah, 
you know, all these kind of advancements in the next sort of 10 years, um, it, that's the biggest tragedy of everything with George is that his illness was really starting to take hold at that point. But yeah, I absolutely concur with what you're saying about that he would, you know, he would thrive in, in today's game. But I think, I don't think people would, um, I think people think that just as an opinion. Do you know what I mean? They don't really look into the meat of it. They don't really consider what we're talking about and say, could he really handle it in today's game? Because they're so predisposed with this idea of, no, Messi and Ronaldo are physical beasts and they're so much better than, things like, you know, like Bill Folks would, or Nobby Styles would turn up to a game eating a steak and smoking 10 fags before before a match in today's game because they're from that era. They wouldn't. They'd obviously catch up. They'd be yeah. some kind of thing. But we use the evidence of what we've got across generations. And George was an example of a player who was thriving with that in a way that players don't do today. You don't see players like even Ronaldo. Ronaldo is a good example of that he, he toughened up because he that period that we all saw from 2006 to 2008 where he became this physical beast because he basically learned to take the bangs. Yeah. Um, but the rules didn't change. He just learned to take the bangs and became better, um, more, more physically strong for it. Whereas the rules were changing to help George and uh, catch up to him and help him. Um, and he was slight. He wasn't, he wasn't as sturdy as Ronaldo. Obviously, you know, it wasn't as physically strong as Ronaldo, but he, I'm not saying that he wasn't strong, but he was strong in his own way. You know, you know what I'm saying. Ronaldo's statuesque. George wasn't like that, but he was using his talents to get in front. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, that's the more remarkable thing about him. Now, that's the one of the things that I hope that people take away from this book that they go back and watch George and they appreciate that kind of thing because um, it's an attitude about football and not just George Best, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it's it's watching him. He's, it's still breathtaking watching him. No, yeah. you know, not in the way that it's gonna look. We, we're two Man United fans talking on a podcast, so when I bring up what I'm about to bring up, it's gonna sound like I'm slagging him off. It's genuinely not my intention. But the Leeds United team of that era, you know, yeah. the, the Johnny Giles and the and the you know the Norman Hunter and so yeah. on. You what? I'm a, as as many people and regular listeners of this podcast know. I'm a huge Brian Clough fan, so I know quite a lot about that Leeds side. Because they kind of come hand in hand, although he's only there for 44 days. And I've watched a lot of those games. They're not, they don't age well. <laughs> you know, yeah. they haven't aged well at all. And you just think they wouldn't, even with the advancements in, uh, in, you know, in football now with like the medical side and, you know, the tactical differences and so on, it, they wouldn't, I, I still stand by, they wouldn't have been able to do it. George Best would have become even better now. Because, no, yeah, yeah. you know, the, it's, it's phenomenal. It's, it's phenomenal. But the idea of what he could do, genuinely could have played, yeah, could have played now. The, lead, the Leeds team that you mentioned, by the way, sorry to interrupt on that one, but the Leeds team, um, they had a guy called Paul Reaney who played at mm. right back. And he was at, Willie Anderson says he was an animal. It was either George's first or second game against him. He went up against Reaney. Reaney kicked him all over the place. And George came off just before off time. Just be like so. Just before off time, he'd been kicked so hard that he came mm. onto the bench. There were bruises all over him, and Willie Anderson says, "I was looking at him. There was almost tears in his eyes because he'd been that physically beaten." And he still went out for the second half. He went out and said, "No," and 
it wasn't a case I'm going to go out and get through the 90 minutes. He was like screaming. At, and this is a 17 or 18 year old screaming at the likes of Bobby Charlton and Dennis Law. Give me the ball. I want to beat this guy. And that's the courage that he had, um, which again, you know, might be, you know, you, you don't see, even with all due respect, I love Marcus Rashford, but you don't see Marcus Rashford doing that. You don't see any players doing that. Um, you don't see him saying, maybe Messi's kind of like that in his own way without um, screaming at teammates because he can do it himself. But um, yeah, it's it's a, it's just a, a, an incredible thing to to observe that kind of thing, especially with that Leeds team that you had the ability to sort of, not the, the ability, the courage to go back at them in, in the face of that kind of abuse. Yeah. Um, the the book as well, you, I know that you, you know, you had members of the best family as well, you know, that you sort of know people. How was, the, how was that, you know, having that level of, you know, the ability to sort of get, that's, a, you know, you used to talk about, you know, players that he played with in the youth team and so on and so forth, but having people who knew a different side to him away from the football field. That must have given it a completely different level, you know, than, a, you, again, your average your average football book about George. I could write a book about George Best. It's not going to be this. It's not going to be as, as good as yours. In no way, you know, it's going to be you know, scribbled. But to have members of the family would give it that, yeah, another edge to it, surely. How yeah, was that? Yeah, it was great. I mean, the, the thing is about um, his very close family, funnily enough, is that George elevated to a level of fame that he couldn't deal with. Well, not couldn't deal with, he learned how to deal with it, but it was very difficult for him to yeah. do that um, because he was the kind of, this is a time when that level of fame wasn't it wasn't projected onto anyone apart from the Beatles and maybe Elvis. Yeah, Certainly not for sports stars or footballers, so he had to, he was carrying that himself and people say, oh could Busby have dealt with him differently, blah 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 he didn't know what he was dealing with. Nobody knew. George was the blueprint. He was going through it. And it was uncomfortable for him at first because he thought, oh, fame is going on to Parkinson and talking and then being nice. Mm. He did, didn't consider the interrogation side of it. Um, and his family found that very very difficult as well because there were negative headlines about George Best. And it's like, why are there negative headlines about him? He's playing football. And it was like womanising and things like that. At the time, it wasn't about his drinking. It was about uh, womanising in the early days and he's sort of um, getting up late for training and, and his fashion and everything. It was seen not in a in a positive light for, for whatever reason. They wanted to knock him down. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, so it's difficult for them and I understood that. So getting, it was good to sort of get their, um, the approval of the close family for the book in yeah. the way that they, obviously there was a little bit of reticence at first. I had to sort of say to them, Trust me that I'm writing something that's going to look at George in a positive light. But they've heard that all before from different yeah. people who've written different books and have asked them for, for approval. So we had to go about it the different way of like, just wait until I finish writing it and then I'll put the finished product in front of you. You can read it through. And if I've come through on my promise, will you get behind it? And it was basically like that. And they said, yeah. Um, some of the different people who were, uh, I don't I don't want to say more present, but differently present through George's career from from his close family were the likes of Lindy um, and Chris Dangerfield. So they, um, Lindy is Angie Best's um, sister, mm. and, and Chris is obviously he's, he's Lindy's husband. So um, 
they they lived together. Chris lived with George and Angie um, around the time Callum was born in California, mm. and so they could talk to me about what George was like as a person and the fact that he was. Um, and, and but by the way, these were his ex in laws, so mm. they didn't have to pe- speak positively of him, but they would talk to the guy who was gentle, he was kind, he was funny, he was intelligent, he was emotional, and most importantly. He wanted to be a good person. And I wanted to put that across as well. Yeah, it's about his football, but I wanted to put aspects of, yeah, he had an illness and he wanted to be good. He wanted to be a good dad. So, yeah, the illness changed a lot of that. But what he's, when he was sober and when he was, uh, his intention, what was in his heart was he wanted to be good. Mm. Um, so they, they came across perfectly like that. And then um, Callum watched from a distance. I asked him to be, you know, I asked him very early on to be involved in it and he sort of stood back a little bit um, because there's been, you know, he doesn't have a, there's not a perfect dynamic in in any family, basically, Mm. and and, and Callum sort of waited a little bit to sort of see the reaction um, of the book, basically, but he was supported from, you know, Apart from saying that, you know, he couldn't, he didn't really want to get involved with it, but he would support me, and he really appreciated what I was trying to do because, mm. um, because he wanted, you know, hero worshipped his dad regardless of what people say, um, people have said about it in his past, and what you know, Callum had a very difficult upbringing, so um, with with that, you know, he lived the experience of this sort of everything that everyone else speculates about, everything mm. that was lived in the papers, so. And that wasn't what I wasn't talking about that in the book. So it was kind of like, just trust me with this, and hopefully you'll like it. And yeah. you know, but he had to wait and see the end products, and then obviously we'll talk about it in a moment. But um, to see where it would lead um, before anything else sort of came in with that. But he was very supportive of it, you know, saying that he really appreciated what I was trying to do with yeah. it. So it was good to it was good to have that um, um, sort of cross the board sort of green light if, if you like you know the fact that i was as long as i was going to do george justice and not drag him through the mud yeah um then they were supportive of that yeah um as you you know alluded to there we'll uh the book has uh has now spawned a, a, a documentary a film on bt sport which will be out on uh, may the 26th bt sport one immediately after the europa league final um I was just going to say, obviously, you've worked with BT Sport before. I'm now aware that people may not, you know, who are listening may not know that, like I do. But yeah, so that you work with them on your book, Too Good to Go Down, um, you know, an amazing book and an amazing mo- uh, film on BT. So, how did it come about with the with the the best stuff? Now, where did that, you know, did you did they approach you? Did you approach them? When did this talk start, as it were? So um, the director. For too good to go down was Tom Boswell. Mm. Uh, I've obviously been in touch with him since, good friends with him. And while we were doing too good to go down, obviously a large part of that concentrates on George's exit from United. Yeah. And when we were going through that, we both said to each other, "Wouldn't it be great to do something on George one day?" And obviously, I was in the early stages of sort of planning to do this book on on George then, but. It, it, it was so far away from what I was thinking. I, I wasn't saying, "Oh, let, let's let's definitely do it. Mm. Um, let let's do a film on, on George and jump straight into it." Um, but I knew that he wanted to do it, and he knew over time that I was writing this book on George. Mm. 
and he sort of came back to me in the middle of last year and he just said, oh, so tell me a little bit more about this book on George. At which point I thought, okay, so, you know, this might be the time for us to talk about it. He said, well, what could we do that's different? Because obviously from BT Sports perspective, they don't want to go down the road that, that like, like I was saying with me writing a book, you know, you don't want to go down the road that everyone's going to go down. So what can we do that's different? I said, well, what I'm doing different with this is it's just about his football. And over time, we basically we, we started talking. Tom said he thought he could be a goer, but translating that to screens a bit different because um, I can avoid talking about his drinking and not be negligent of it and not be um, ignorant to it and pretend it's completely not happening. But you you can keep it on the back burner and you can talk about the other reasons for it in a book. You can go into far more detail to not make it the focus of attention. On screen, it's a, a lot more different to do that because the second you introduce drink, you are consciously telling the same George story that's been told before. Yeah. So you have to sort of stay away from that. The best way of doing that was to capture the moment, the essence of basically the front cover image, which is George as a teenager mm-hmm. um, looking like he's got he, he can beat the world. So the best way of translating that on screen was to take it right up until the European Cup final and finish with a crescendo of him scoring the goal he scores in the Cup final. And you can make a full film of this early part of his life that captures the essence of the book, really, and without going into, without having to go about um, the the drinking. And that was how we sort of came along that with this idea of, of putting it into a film. And that's the thing that really got legs really and um then the sort of thing with Callum came about when we were discussing who would be a great person to present it you know mm. someone who could put a voice to it to carry it along um and i thought because of the because of the nature of the book and because it did have some family involvement and a family forward and everything that it'd be good if Callum could be involved in this. It, uh, but I didn't want to bring that up at first because I thought it'd be too contrived. I wasn't sure how it would be received by the team at BT because Callum has a different kind of um, celebrity image. I don't know if they, you know, because obviously it's a very serious sporting film um, series that they've got. It's very acclaimed. It's very critically acclaimed and yeah. loads of views and everything like that. So they want to keep it serious. Um, but it's actually Tom... Tom, the director, sort of floated it to me. He said, what do you think about this? And I said, you know, you probably won't believe me, but I was going to suggest it. I just didn't know how to bring it up. Um, He said, do you think he'd do it? I said, I'll I'll ask him. And I I think that he will, because what we, you know, basically we could say is what we're trying to do with it, you know, is I think you will really get behind this kind of um, message that we're trying to put across and it, um, and he, Callum was on board straight away. He loved what we were trying to do with it. Um, and it was great to work with him on it. So he was really enthusiastic and really committed to the project. Um, I worked closely with him on the script for it. You know, um, obviously the narration. It's mostly his words. Um, some of the book is intertwined in there as well. But he really wanted to sort of get across this version of um, George's life. Also because some of the footage he hadn't seen you know, with the BT's archives and they're, they're working, finding the things from George's early years was incredible. So um, for, for Callum to go through it... Um, it must be really... wonderful for him, like, to oh. be able to see new stuff of his, you know, of his dad. 
just yeah. you know that must have been a marvelous like a wonderful thing for him to see for the first time I, I you know i can't put words into his mouth i hope so i hope yeah. so because like you know i've been sort of enticed him into the projects then yeah I, I really hope that he comes out of this feeling more rewarded than anything um mm-hmm. that he's done about his dad because i think i honestly and i'm i'm saying this as someone who, who wrote the book but i you know i haven't edited this film i haven't directed this film i've, I've worked on it in a producer capacity i've given a, i have given a lot of input i've worked heavily on it but i haven't directed it and i haven't edited it and uh, so it I kind of want to remove myself from it as much as possible to be able to tell you that yeah. I think it's the best film that's being done on George without it sounding like I'm being conceited, basically. Yeah. Um, because I do. I believe it is. If you want to watch a, a film about George Best of Footballer and you want to know how good he was, this is going to be the film. And I wanted that to be the case when I was pitching it to Callum as an idea. I mm. wanted to... I, I hoped that it would be at that point. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm sort of selling him on the idea of it being that way, and for it to come to this point where I think it is, then yeah, I um, yeah, I, I you know, I, it's United fans are gonna love it. Anyone who loves football will love it. Honestly, it's so good. Yeah, it's gonna, it's 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 gonna be on heavy rotation. I feel in my house for certain, for definite. Um, I had all sorts of things planned for this podcast. There was going to be all sorts of topics. There was going to be, yeah. But we're coming very close to the point where I usually say, right, let's wrap things up here. We've covered one topic, which is George Best, but what a topic to cover. I guess we're going to have to save the rest for a part two, really, or a part three and four. Um, I want to wrap up and so say, what's next? What have you got? You know, What can you talk about that you're working on? What have you got coming out in the pipeline and so on? Yeah, um, so the next book that's going to come out is a book on the uh, Brazilian twins who played for United. I said book on, a book with the Brazilian twins who played for United, Fabio and Rafael. Um, that's, it's funny because I've started to write my own books more and more. In earlier years, I would do a lot of autobiographies. I worked yeah. a lot with players and I loved those experiences. But time being what it is, it's just the one is sort of over the other, do you know, basically. And, um, yeah, I've been looking at biographies with players through the years, and um, but I've been more selective with taking on different work over the last few years, or been lucky enough to, or, or one type of book, like writing about players like George or David Beckham or Eric Cantona or Jimmy Murphy. Those projects have been more time-consuming, and I, they've just taken precedence. For whatever reason, they've been there. So I haven't done biographies as... Um, as in the past, but this opportunity came to work with the twins, and I'm like you, probably disillusioned a little bit with modern football. Mm. But those guys obviously epitomised the joy of that United team that they played in, and they like that as people, and they've made me fall back in love with with modern football a little bit over the last year. Um, it's a very, very different kind of autobiography to what I've worked on before, mm. and I think different to what is out there. It's told in their voices, um, two different voices. Raphael, full of energy, as you would expect. Fabio, very emotional journey. Um, talks a lot about anxiety and um, some difficult things like his injury problems. Also, Emiliano Salah, who we, we knew. It's very, very emotional passages in the book. Um, but a really rewarding one to work on, and you know, they're 
when you work on something like that, and like I said, when you've been disillusioned a little bit with modern football, to be able to come out of this other side of it and say that these guys are um, as nice and as lovely as you can, as you would like to think that they are, mm. um, they just they're just the best guys, and it's just been an absolute pleasure working with them. So that's going to be the next thing coming out. Um, obviously, I'm working on a, a bunch of other things that I can't really talk about um, because yeah. that's just the, the nature of of the way, like, you know, the George Best thing is coming out in two weeks and I couldn't even talk about it last week. Do you know yes. what I mean? The, the film. So um, I, I'm doing a podcast series um, that I'm uploading. I, I already recorded that for Patreon, but then I closed my Patreon. So I'm uploading the um, the podcast series, a second podcast with Paddy Barkley on the history of United. Mm. I'm uploading that to YouTube. Um, it's on Fergie's early years at United. So um, people might find it interesting because there's a lot of stories in there from Paddy's reporting. Of, of the time and also different stories that we found out, um, such as Marco Van Basten nearly signing for United um, in 1988. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, so it's good to... But I'm not going to sort of talk about it. Yet. Although I, I, I'd be happy to talk to you, Luke, about it. But I want to bread, I want to breadcrumb it so people go and listen to, to the podcast. But that will be found on, on YouTube. That's amazing. Well, we will, we will wrap it there. But this, there are there are many conversations that I believe you and I can have. Are you going to uncross me from the list, and I can come back? I'm going to. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to just put a smiley face, and I'm just going to put number one, and then cross out number one. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'll do, and we'll just chalk it up. Yeah. Yeah, eventually, it'll look like you and me have done time in prison together, because there's going to be so many. <laughs> like when it's going to be crossed off. But yeah, I just again, just thank you so much. Um, I mean it. It's you know it's been a we've known each other a long time now, and it's it's never been anything short of a complete pleasure. Quarter uh, of my life. Yeah. Now, and now I'm doing these life um, sort of moments at the minute, you know, because of reaching a landmark in my life. That yeah, a quarter, more than a quarter of my life yeah. I've known you, and it's just yeah, a pleasure for me as well, man. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on as well, and uh, we should probably do it again sometime. We should. Hi, this is the Blender Coach, and you're listening to a Touchline Rants latest podcast, Back of the Net. The podcast you just listened to was brought to you by Anchor. Ever wanted to start your own podcast? Now you can, by using Anchor. Anchor is great at anchoring and anchoring away at Anchor, so you can anchor all night long if you like. Anchor. (laughs) Try Anchor.